and welcome to the In the Gap podcast. I'm Jason Tabris. This time I'm joined by Jeff Perlman, a tremendous sports writer. If you somehow don't have instant name recognition for him, let me jog your memory or, or hook your interest. Uh, he wrote The Bad Guys One, which is a book about the 86 Mets, one of the best baseball books I've ever read. Uh, he wrote Football for a Buck about the disintegration of the USFL, Sweetness about Walter Payton, Gunslinger about Brett Favre, books about the Dallas Cowboys, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. Uh, he's got one coming out about Bo Jackson in the fall that I can't wait to read. If you watch the HBO series Winning Time about the LA Lakers and Magic Johnson in the Showtime era, Jeff wrote the book Showtime that that's based on. He also used to write uh, for Sports Illustrated and for ESPN Page Two. He was on the beat for a while with, with Sports Illustrated. Uh, if you hear the name John Rocker, uh, the next thought that comes into your head is the interview that Jeff did with him uh, in, I think it was 1999. Uh, so again, Jeff Perlman has insight into the, the world of baseball. He's also been a little bit detached from it for, for the last few years, uh, which has value as well and insight as well. Uh, when you, when you have a little bit of distance from the game, I think, uh, so we talk a lot about the culture of locker rooms and sort of where things were back then when he was covering the beat and where things are now, the sort of ideological breakdown of locker rooms. And a lot of that was in response to the notion of everyone in the world is talking about the Dobbs decision that uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, but baseball is dead silent on it. Dead silence. You've seen some stuff pop up from the NBA, from players in the NBA. There's a statement from the NBA itself. Kyrie Irving, LeBron James put out statements, other players, football players like Joe Burrow and a couple of other people in the NFL have said stuff. But baseball, I can't find anything. Mark Canna gave an interview and gave a quote. That's the only thing I've been able to see. I have looked a couple times. I will continue to look. Uh, I hope to be proven wrong on this, but that's sort of the the spark for that conversation. It's a really, really nuanced, interesting conversation, uh, and I, I can't wait for you to listen to it. And so I'm just going to stop teasing it and actually just you know play the interview. What uh, as as a sports fan or baseball fan, can you tell me a little about just like your history with baseball when you first uh, kind of you know started paying attention to it, uh, first game experiences, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, well, I grew up in a small town in, uh, in called Mayo Pack, New York. It's like an hour north of the city. None of my family was into sports. None of my family cared about sports. Um, but I had a neighbor up the street, a friend of mine named Dennis Gargano. And uh, he was my age. And his dad, Vinny Gargano, was a huge Mets fan. And he would sit in front of his TV and smoke his Viceroy's and drink, you know, Coca-Cola after Coca-Cola and watch the Mets. And, um, he just gave me a real education on baseball. I don't know what it was about it, but he gave me a real education. And I just remember sitting there talking with him about Dwight Gooden and Darryl Strawberry. And even before that, Rusty Staub and Doug Flynn and um, just being really enamored by it. And um, as I grew up, I really came to love like the color of sports, the uniforms, uh, the excitement, the names. I grew up in a very sort of conservative, middle of nowhere, very white town. So I used to love Rupert Jones and Joaquin Andujar and Afros and big chains and, you know, Latin American names. And I just, I was really absorbed by the color of sports. And, and um, I probably averaged one baseball game a year, even though we didn't live that far, live around an hour from Shane Yankee stadium. I got basically one game a year and um, nobody wanted to go in my family except me, but they were nice enough to take me to my one game a year. I had basically similar experience uh, growing up uh, around like Long Island and New York and Jersey. I moved around a lot as a kid, but yeah, it was usually that one game a year, like on my birthday kind of thing at Yankee Stadium in like the early 90s, uh, which was yeah. not quite 
the time of wine and roses for the Yankees, but uh, I, you know, you're 10 years old. You don't, you don't realize. Uh, um, yeah, um, you don't care. No, not at all. Um, what's the state of your like fandom now? Do you have to let that go at a certain point? Yeah, I wouldn't say I've been a fan in a long time. I, um, I still pay attention. I still like seeing how the New York teams do. Um, I live in Southern California now. Uh, we just went to an Angels game last week, me and my son. I go to three or four games a year. Um, it's funny whenever I whenever I like post on social media from a game, people who know what I do for a living are always surprised because we're always in the upper 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 deck. But my son and I love sitting in the upper 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 deck, so we always buy three dollar tickets, whatever you can get cheapest on StubHub. We'll go to Angel Stadium or wherever Dodger Stadium, and we like sitting in the high corners and just sort of roaming around and and not having people crowding you and. Um, I enjoy the experience. You know, I enjoy going to games. I enjoy sitting there with my kid. I enjoy that we chat and eat. But do I like, could I name, like when we went to the Angels game the other day, I think I knew five members of the Can you go a little bit more into why you, you prefer to stay like away, further away from the, uh, the, 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 uh, the more expensive seats? Number one, I, um, I like the view from up high. I like being able to see everything. Um, and not just like, I don't need to see whether a guy's throwing a fastball or a slider. I don't really care doesn't really matter to me anymore. I like this the spanning of the whole stadium. And you can see the scoreboard and you see the different people and you watch the fans and you can see if they're bouncing around the beach ball along the third baseline. You see that and um, you see the ball girls and you see the bullpen. I love watching the bullpen. I just think you get a really actually good view if you don't care about the nitty gritty of what's going on as far as what pitches a guy is throwing or whether where a third baseman is sort of, I don't know, adjusting his cup or whatever. Like, I don't doesn't matter and the other thing is is um it is just a really relaxed environment like i prefer i don't need um i don't need to have a guy next to me to my left telling me you know mike trout's really struggling i don't need a guy on my right saying he wishes otani would play more whatever like i just like watching with my kid so i i, I like the i guess the isolation and the and also there's something cool about being in the upper 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 top corner seat of the stadium like where you can't go any further left, right, or uh, or back. We both really kind of get a kick out of that. Well, that's a competition for foul balls too, I guess. If, if that if that's uh, what motivates, I know we've some... never come close because we're still high up. We've never we never come close to a foul ball. Never. Is that a goal though? No, don't care. Just missed one a couple of years ago. Uh, my wife had come uh, to a game. I was at Camden Yards, which is to me the best place to see a game still, um, and. Um, Basically, she came into the game late. She sat right next to me, and I basically had to, like, it was the choice between lunging and knocking over my wife or letting the ball go, and I, I made the right choice. Um, but, um, yeah, still, for some reason, it, it feels like a, a little bit of an Ahab uh, white whale situation for me. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it. But, um, yeah, that's okay, because you want to, one day, you want to be able to tell somebody that you caught a ball that was hit foul off, off the bat of Jeff McNeil, and you'll have that memory forever. I just want to have the ball. I don't even care. Like, honestly, like, even if, like, I got it flipped to me by a ball boy, I don't know what it is. It's just the, getting the object. Can't quite put my finger on it. I'll give you a blunt take here, and this is the truth. Like, um, I covered baseball for several years at Sports Illustrated. I've read a bunch of books about baseball. And um, it definitely takes away the fandom in you. Like, it just does. Like, it, I think it has to. I don't know many baseball writers who are still diehard baseball fans. Like, I've been so many games over the years. I've covered so many games. I don't get nervous. You know, there's no like, there's no, oh my God, that's Mike Trout or oh my God, that's Shohei Otani or oh my God. Like, I don't have that anymore at all. Zero percent. 
I get whether I got a foul ball or not. I actually wouldn't care. Um, I went to a game recently with my old college roommate. We went to a Padres Braves game. He's a diehard Braves fan. He's my age, so we're both 50. He's a great guy. But there was a moment when, um, what the, what's the Braves shortstop's name? You know uh, Braves Andy, shortstop. Andy Swanson? Yes. He walks by, and I could see my roommate's eyes light up and get real excited. And he starts saying to me, that's Dansby Swanson. He blah, 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 blah. And my first thing is like, man, I'm 30 years older or 25 years older than that guy. Like, I can't get that excited anymore. Like, I just, I've become like this jaded old grump. So going to games and enjoying it with my son is, is perfect for me. But I, it's not going to, like, when I was a kid, if I could have been there for Ricky Henderson breaking Lou Brock's stolen base record, it would have been the greatest thing ever. But as an adult, I don't give a crap. Like, I don't, I don't, if Mike Trout is going to break the all-time home run record, it, may, it would make no difference to me whether I'm there or not. I know that sucks. But that's just kind of what it did to me covering it for so long. You know what I get? I've, so I, most of my work is on the entertainment side. I've done a billion interviews with, with actors and, and, and such. And it's the same thing. I don't feel any, like, you know, any kind of, like, starstruck kind of thing. But a few years ago, I remember I was at a minor league game, and I saw Gene Michael and, like, went to, like, you know, ask for an autograph or something. I was like, I don't know. This is a, this is a while ago. Actually, I was probably, like, 25 26 and i got like tongue-tied and it's like <laughs> it's so weird that it's like i yeah. completely you know no big deal interviewing anybody else but you know gene michael uh gm of the yankees from 20 years prior apparently that that, that got me uh shaking in my boots weirdly um for you yeah. is the it late gene michael the late, the late, gene michael. Michael, yes. the late great gene michael yes um for you is it it sounds like a lot of this is repetition but is any of it also just kind of i mean covering baseball uh, as closely as you have and, and all the experience you've had, you, you know, you've gotten a, a bit of a warts and all uh, perspective of it. Is, is, is that a little bit of it as well? Maybe a little. I just think the main thing is like, I know this sucks. It's probably more of a downer than you want. Like things get old in life, you know, like I've been to a million baseball games. Like it's just kind of got, it's gotten old to me. Um, I, and also I right, hear I sound really old man. Like <laughs> there are things about the game now that I really don't enjoy. Um, when I go to a game, I hate the shift. I just do. I don't, I hate the shift. Um, I hate that no one steals bases anymore. Yeah. You know, um, it drives me crazy. It's become such an all or nothing game. Uh, I just really, I don't find as enjoyable. My favorite thing in baseball is always a stolen base. I grew up a diehard Ricky Henderson, Tim Raines, Vince Coleman, that kind of era, Gary Pettis, run, run, run. And maybe it wasn't the most logical choice in hindsight. Maybe like Ricky Henderson getting thrown out 40 times in this season did more harm than the 118 stolen bases did good. But like, it was so fun. You know, it was, it was fun. And watching guys like watching Willie Wilson or Mookie Wilson go first and third was freaking dynamic. And that part of the game just feels so rare now. Um, You're waiting for a home run and sitting there waiting for a home run. It's kind of like waiting for, you know, some coins to fall from the sky. It's just not that enjoyable. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just like too no. I agree that. completely. I I miss the stolen base. I I'm a big advocate. I know I'm, I'm a Mets fan now, uh, and like when they signed Starling Marte, I was excited because that's a guy who actually steals 40 bases a year. Just that it's the most exciting. It's the most exciting playing baseball in my opinion. And yeah, it, it beats the hell out of watching a guy try to hit home run, but most likely just striking out or drawing a walk or you know you know hitting a dribble to third. Yeah, it's 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 a yeah. No, I'm 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 with you on that. I get it. It, it definitely the game has changed um what, what's your opinion on like bad flips things of uh, things of that nature like expression in love the game? them big fan baseball needs it i i mean i hate even if you're not a uh even if you're a traditionalist you 
you'd have to be blind to say to see that um, baseball is really struggling to connect with young fans. And that's like it sounds like a cliche, but I see it with my kids and their friends. They just don't care. Like they don't care. Kids don't care about baseball. We live in an era of immediacy now, now, now. And if you don't give them color and a little bit of spark, um, you're not going to get them. So I think bat flips are cool. You know, I think like the Yankees still stupid archaic rules on facial hair are ridiculous. Yeah. You want these people to express themselves and be dynamic and be, I mean, I, I was thinking like when we went to the Angels game the other day, so Mike Trout is the big draw for Trout and Otani are the big draws for the Angels. And when Otani isn't pitching, you're going to see him hit four times. That's it. Four times. So like, come see Mike Trout and you know, you see him hit four times. Like the, you have to give fans more than that. That's not enough to say shape. Yeah. Like you go watch a Golden State Warriors fan, uh, game. You're going to see Steph Curry with the ball almost the entire game. You know, you go watch um, a New York Giants games. You know, Saquon Barkley is going to carry 25 to 30 times if he's not hurt. Mike Trout, you're going to see him hit four times. So you have to give fans different things. You you absolutely have to. And I just think baseball is really struggling to figure itself out in a in a modern era where it doesn't quite fit. Going back to your your time uh, sort of on the beat and, and covering baseball closely, I'm curious how much of it feels like, a, I mean, obviously there's a struggle between like the PR side of things and you know, trying to push back and, and ask players like meaningful questions. How has that changed versus now when you're, you're more, I guess, quote, freelance when you're writing books? You know, the worst part of being a baseball writer, well, the two hardest parts are if you're a beat writer for a newspaper or for a team, you know, you're going to 140 to 155 games a year. And that just, that could kill you if you're, especially if you're covering a bad team. I mean, it's, it's like living in, in the desert. Um, and the other is the, the clubhouse. Baseball clubhouses are really terrifying places for writers in a lot of ways. You're definitely the, not the cool kid in, in school. You're the outcast. Nobody wants to talk to you. You're avoided. Um, it's really hard. But when you, when you write books and you come along, especially when books are mainly about nostalgia, so I'm looking back at subjects, people are much more willing to talk and more, much more excited to talk when it's their past, not their present. More excited, I imagine, also to be a little bit more forthcoming with information uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the, the beat setup, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, you don't have a boss anymore. Like, that's the thing. Like, you're, when, you're, when you're a baseball writer and you're covering the Houston Astros and you're asking uh, Jose Altuve, see, I put up his name, like, about something, well, he has to be aware that um, he works for someone. What he says is going to be a reflection on his employer. You can't get too political. You probably don't want to get too personal. You can't criticize teammates. But once you're retired and you're on your own, you can do whatever the hell you want. So uh, I like retired athletes over active athletes as far as interview subjects. The, the political thing is, is interesting, especially with what's going on right now, what, what happened with, with Uvalde, what happened with, with uh, Dobbs. Um, Pride, I know um, there were a couple players that really spoke out, Mark Hanna um, and Liam Hendricks for the White Sox, but not a lot. I mean, not a lot of baseball players will make any kind of supportive statements around, you know, choice or pride or gun control. It's really like just a completely apolitical zone. They don't get asked about it. They don't talk about it. It, it, Even in comparison to some of the other sports where you see it a little bit more, Canna was talking about being in the minority in that clubhouse. Um, because of you know with, with regard to pride uh and and being in support of that i just that was kind of a shocking thing because it seems like in general population you're going to see more of like a 55 60 percent in favor of things like that um how conservative are baseball clubhouses really 
I mean, from when I was covering it, super, super conservative. Like, super, super conservative. It's a red state game, uh, more than people would know. I always think it's funny when I see guys playing for, like, the Yankees or Mets or, you know, the Cubs or White Sox in these kind of liberal, bigger cities. San Francisco Giants. I, was, I, I still find it funny that some of the guys who played for the San Francisco Giants um, and had to endure San Francisco. Meanwhile, they're, you know, hard right, you know, Second Amendment all the way kind of guys. Um, it's a very conservative world. I actually would say, if I had to take a guess, say how many, what percentage of, of Major League Baseball players support, what to say, gay rights, gay marriage, my guess would be 15%. Jeez. Um, this is not a diverse world anymore either. There are very few African-American players. Um, it's mainly drawing from white rural areas. Uh, it's not an enlightened world. It's not. I was surprised more players didn't speak out against having to wear patches and such for, for Pride Day and representing and recognizing uh, LGBT causes. It's, yeah, it's very conservative. Very, very conservative. Does that make it feel somewhat disingenuous when the, the league itself puts forward uh, things like you know, pride initiatives or, or, or stuff like that? Is it, just, is it just lip service to those causes then? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing the leagues believe it maybe. And the, I mean, you know, most of the owners are highly educated. Most of the leagues are highly educated. I do think it's a little bit weird um, as a society. I was just talking to this with my wife the other day. Like I was in Target yesterday and you see all Target selling all these uh, – gay pride shirts which is great but i'd really be interested to see where they're donating money to if they actually believe in the cause or if it's just a way of making money and the same goes there you know i, mean, I don't know where major league baseball where the owners are actually donating money i do know to a certain degree that the rainbow pride flag which is an important symbol in america has also become you know a way for corporations to show that they're inclusive and uh, try and make customers feel all warm and fuzzy when for all you know under the table they're donating millions of dollars to MAGA causes. So I don't know. That's a long winded answer. I don't really know. I mean, I don't know. I, but I think most ballplayers are not, are probably not in favor of it. Do athletes in general, this is a, this is a sort of a big question, but do athletes in general sort of have a responsibility to speak in favor of marginalized people and, and these causes? I mean, not if they don't believe it. I think, I mean, it's interesting. Like, uh, I always said this. Years ago, back in 1999, I wrote this, this story for Sports Illustrated about John Rocker, the racist baseball player. And um, after the story came out, you know, Rocker went off, went off on sort of, you know, gays and foreigners and et cetera. And after the story came out, he was suspended and he was demoted and he was fined by Major League Baseball. And I always thought that was preposterous. Like the reality is, if you're going to if you're going to tell your players, uh that they need to speak to the media and they should speak to the media and promote the game on and on and on. You don't know what their beliefs are and you certainly shouldn't expect that they're going to share your beliefs. So you can't have it both ways, you know, like, and yeah, would it be great if all these ball players were speaking out for, you know, in the name of gay rights, that'd be wonderful, but it wouldn't be wonderful if they don't believe it. Then it would just be preposterous and, and farcical. So yeah, I, it's just not realistic. Most of these are people from right-leaning states, right-leaning backgrounds, very conservative. They weren't raised with these ideals. So it's not realistic to think that they're all going to be, all of a sudden they're going to be on the pro-gay pride uh, parade. And this may be an unfair question because I know you're not on the beat anymore. Um, but in your opinion, do leagues do enough to try? And because I understand like this, what you're saying, these players get there from with a certain background, uh, a certain viewpoint. But viewpoints change and, you know, backgrounds, you know, 
you know, kind of get put to the side as you get illuminated and see the world uh, as a bigger place. Uh, do these leagues do enough, do you think, uh, to not just promote these causes in a, in a superficial way, but to actually educate players on these things and actually try to kind of nudge them in that direction? I don't know if it's their job. I hate to say it. I don't know if it's their job. Like, I mean, to me, look, I'm as liberal as you could be. I am horrified by what's going on in this country. I cannot stand Donald Trump. I think everything that's happened is a disgrace. But isn't Major League Baseball's job to convince its players to get behind the gay rights movement or to be, you know, to call for an assault rifle ban? I, I don't really think so. I don't. I really don't. I think these guys are signed up to play baseball. They, they have a job to do, which is to play baseball. Um, they're not always going to, again, they're not always going to share your opinions. Uh, that's fine. I think what a league can do well overall is pick certain charities that's going to stand behind and truly devote itself to it. But I just, I just don't think educating your players is, it'd be nice, but I just don't think it's really their responsibility in a major way. I understand what you're, what you're talking about. Uh, but from a business standpoint, uh, there's definitely like with the rocker suspension and everything going back and I, I, 1999 is a different world, obviously, but you know, a move like that isn't, I don't know that it's just, you said something we don't agree with so much as it's, you said something that caused a lot of problems for us on the business side of things and made us look like we're supportive of, you know, racist ideals. Uh, so we need to do something here to, you know, re-earn that audience's trust. Because I think the baseball audience isn't as red as the clubhouse. It's still probably not as, you know, blue as, you know, the, the, the rest of the country. But I think, you know, pushing players to acknowledge these things or to, you know, sort of educate themselves in the hopes of more support and bringing a little more authenticity to these causes that baseball gets behind, that might be in their best interest. Is that fair to say from a business standpoint purely? I guess so. But again, like it's not, I mean, like to me, for example, and probably to you, like what it is gay marriage, like gay marriage to me, it's not, I don't even see how it's a debate, right? It's obviously it's law now. It should have been law a long time ago. A gay couple should be able to marry. They should be able to adopt, blah, 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 on and on and on. No brainer, easy. But to like, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma born Tex Magoo, the closer for the Texas Rangers, maybe he actually views it as an abomination. And this is not the, how could you, you can't have a man and a man marry. That just doesn't make any sense. Marriage is between a man and a woman, blah, 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 blah. I just don't support that. Again, I don't, I 100% disagree with Tex Magoo's opinion, but like, I do think he has a right to have it. And I don't really think, I just think it's weird to have sports leagues trying to convince their players why these are the better political or social positions to take. You know, maybe if, in, instead of that, it makes more sense for leagues to just get behind initiatives that sort of everyone that are pretty universal. Uh, cancer, you know, early detection cancer, certain diseases, uh, et cetera, et cetera, the Ukraine, I don't know, stuff like that. But I don't know. I, I feel a little uncomfortable even, and I'm as liberal as you can be, sort of urging players to get behind certain political stances. Um, I know you've been asked about this a billion times. Um, I'm going to tr try to attempt to ask in a way that maybe you haven't been asked as much. Um, okay, go ahead. When the rocker thing happened, uh, what is... I've never been asked about this. All right. <laughs> when it happened, what is... Because uh, I've never been on, on the end of, of someone saying something so outrageous, uh, so I wouldn't have any perspective on that. But I know when I hear someone say something that feels a bit off, 
I, it definitely registers in my head. Mm, you probably want to take that. Like, what's your thought when he says that just from a, just as an experienced reporter, uh, is, I, I, I imagine the first thought is shit. I have the tapes on, right? Like, what is the first thought that went through your head when he, when he kind of let that, you know, tirade fly? I mean, the first thought, to be honest, I have no idea. Cause it was 23 yeah. years ago. Yeah. So I couldn't actually literally tell you, but, I uh, I remember being very, 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 very shocked. And I remember the interview being over and actually calling my mom and being like, I don't know what the hell just happened. Like, this is insane. Um, and then later telling my editors at Sports Illustrated, like, this is what happened. I'm going to write it. And now everyone there being very supportive behind me, you know, you got to write it. Of course you have to write it. So, um, so you know, I... Um, I was shocked. You know, you don't usually expect, you want people to open up, but you don't expect them to open up that wildly and that freely. And um, as I just said to you, I always thought him being suspended was nonsense. Like, again, like you put these players out there, you want them to talk to the media and then you don't like what a guy says and you suspend him for it, I think is a pretty, uh, not very healthy way of, of handling situations like that. Was it rare to have that kind of access? Could your, your, cause I would imagine that most of the experiences are going to be more of a controlled environment um, to have that kind of access to someone as a kind of a, a ride along or, or being around with them for a full day. Obviously that's not that rare in larger like culture reporting, but for baseball, I would imagine it's more controlled. Is that fair or was, was that a unique situation for you at that point? No, back then you would get player back. First of all, different times. Sports Illustrated was a, was a freaking power player back then, yeah. you know, and SI was a huge publication came out every week. Uh, 3.5 million readers or something like that. So if you called, if it was an off season, which this was, and you called an agent and you said, Hey, I want to go blah, blah, blah with so-and-so your odds are very good of having that happen. So we would do all sorts of stories where we'd go along with players and go to their house or go fishing or go to the supermarket or go to a ball game. It was a kind of a great time to be a sports writer because there was a lot of that much, much more than there is nowadays. Is that kind of the element of just trying to keep control on the, the, the setting, the situation, what the player is saying? You're saying nowadays? Why, did, why isn't it as common? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of asked, you know, kind of asked and answered, I guess. But I mean, I think um, I think social media made a huge impact on sort of in a negative way on the access we get to athletes. And it was always funny because I remember when like Twitter came along, there was always like... Uh, why should athletes talk to reporters because they're going to be able to have their own, whatever mouthpiece. Now. I think a lot of people poo poo that like, yeah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But it actually isn't fine. Like the access is terrible and locker rooms and clubhouses aren't as open as much as they used to be. Players are very hard to find. Uh, agents run the show much more than teams and public relations directors. Every now and then you can get someone off the court, but it's much, much harder than it used to be. Um, you know, why, I guess the thinking, which I can't completely argue against, is if you're an agent of a player, and let's say Tyler Kepner from the New York Times calls you and says, "I want to, can I get 30 minutes, or can I, can I spend the day with uh, Aaron Judge? And you're like, well, Aaron Judge won't get to read the article, right? Correct. You won't be able to control the message, right? Correct. You won't read the article to him before it comes out, right? Correct. So why would I give you that access? Like, how is that going to help my client? And you can say, well, it could be a great story and Tyler's a great writer, 
But I just think a lot of agents are like, and players are like, well, what's, why, why should I do that when I can control my own message now? And I can put out everything I want via my social media feed, which probably more people are going to read than read your article in the New York Times, as sad as that is. Jumping back to Rocket for a second, but really more of a, a larger question. When something like like that happens uh, and, you know, there's there's denials and, and stuff like that, and you're pulled into the spotlight, like you said, you like the anonymity. When you're pulled into the spotlight of it or what's reactions to some of the, the books that you've written, obviously what what, what happened with uh, with Winning Time, what happened, I know with the Walter Payton book, I know there was some blowback on you. When those things happen, it, what's the mindset there? Is it is it fear? Is it anger? Uh, defiance? What, what goes through your head when those things kind of happen? With Winning Time, it's been really fun. You know, so that's great. I have no complaint. I get paid, get to be in a TV show based on a book that I wrote. I get to see my name on the screen every week. It's fun. It's like a thrill. It's like going to a candy store. Also during the pandemic and Trump and all that nonsense, it was like a beacon of light in an otherwise really dark period for, you know, for me and for lots of people, obviously. So that was great. Um, but with the Jerry West Rocker stuff, does that, have still, does that still feel good? No, I didn't care. That had nothing to do with me. I really did. I swear to God, I just was like, eh, all right, not suing me. Um, the, you know, rocker, very uncomfortable. Walter Payton, you know, Mike Dick has said he would spit on me when the book came out. That was uncomfortable. I don't like, um, it's a weird thing. My wife and I have talked about this many times. Like, I'm a firm believer in reporting the truth, in reporting hard, in going after it, digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. However, I do not always love the aftermath of that. Um, I don't like upsetting people. I don't like making people, I don't like hurting feelings. I don't like people feeling really bad. Like it's not, people think some, I think sometimes people assume journalists are heartless and just, you know, you don't care and you're just trying to ruin people's lives and anything. But I just, I don't really know another way of writing biographies than to be very truthful and to tell a full story. But I don't like, you know, I don't like that, Walter Payne's family has to deal with the news of him having an out of wedlock kid, you know, and it going public. Like, I don't, I don't relish that. I just don't know another way to write a biography about Walter Payton. Find out he had an out of wedlock kid. Like you can't not write about it. This guy's an iconic football player and you're telling his life story. I know it's weird. A book comes out. You're always excited. You're always nervous. Dueling emotions. I know you're working on a Bo Jackson book. When, uh, when is that slated to come out? That is coming out October 25th. Um, with that, is that something where you talk to Bo Jackson or is it you keep the distance from the, the main subject? Well, I tried talking to Bo Jackson. I, uh, one of the first things I did is I sent him a bunch of my books and a, and a letter and he called me and we spoke for maybe 35, 40 minutes. He was very nice, but told me he wasn't interested in helping with the book for certain reasons. That was fine. You know, whatever. And, um, every now and then I would send him like some cool artifact I found from his life. Never heard back from him, and that's it. <laughs> that's basically what happened. Do you prefer to have the uh, distance from from a subject, or, or is it is that ultimately a, a hamper you? I mean, I'd rather they talk. You know, I'd always rather they talk. And I just had Howard Bryant on my podcast, and he had a Ricky Henderson book out. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Ricky, he said cooperate early on, and then just froze him out. And I said, would you prefer? Is there any advantage to that? He's like, no. And there really isn't. There's no advantage. People pretend there is when it happens to him. And maybe I used to do that too. But given the choice, I'd always have another voice. You know, that doesn't mean surrendering control to him or, you know, giving him any sort of power over the book. But certainly it would be ideal to have him talk. All right, huge thanks to Jeff Perlman for popping onto the show. Uh, I thought that was a great conversation. It's one I've been thinking about a bit uh, after, after closing off the call. 
Um, I think it's a definitely, again, it's a very deep conversation. Um, I will say one thing I completely forgot to mention this during the interview. Um, and so it's a little unfair to tack this on at the end, but I will say um, baseball has made strong efforts over the last few years to show the expanding role of women in the game. Uh, you've seen it in broadcast booths. Uh, the Apple TV Plus uh, broadcasts are, are a great example. MLB Network is a great example. Uh, there's a lot more opportunities for women uh, on air uh, in the game. There's also opportunities in the dugout and in support roles, in the minor leagues. Uh, there's, you know, uh, a woman manager within in the Yankees farm system. Coaches, uh, the general manager of the Miami Marlins, uh, who worked for the Yankees for a while and also worked in the MLB offices for a while. It, it's growing the game. It's tremendous. Um also the role of uh, women fans in the game. Uh, I literally just pulled this up. So I'm looking at stats here and it's, it's around 40%, 40 to 45% is what I seem to be seeing here in some different reports. It also creates, I think um, a greater responsibility even than what I think morally exists uh, for the game to say something uh, and put their checkbook uh, out front. I think baseball needs to do that again, separating this from the players, which is again, a conversation we went over, uh, with Jeff, and again, again, it's a tremendous conversation, but the league itself uh, absolutely has that responsibility, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Hopefully that does happen because that's meaningful. Uh, I will close on that slightly editorialized comments. Slightly. Ain't nothing slight about that, I guess. Uh, but I will close on that. I will thank you for listening as always. Uh, I will tell you to check out Jeff Perlman at, at Jeff Perlman on Twitter. Uh, jeffperlman.com is his blog site. And again, uh, he's got that Bo Jackson book coming out in the fall. Highly advise you to check out his author page on Amazon, which I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, you can follow me at J-T-A-B-R-Y-S on Twitter. I will continue to put these episodes out. We will be back. And uh, I thank you again. And uh, that's it. Bye. Bye.